Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Just in the evening, otherwise with me, Nancy Richards, and also with Hazel Macrozzini and Garnet and Quinica, and we're all together with you through until uh, approximately 10 to 2. Well, otherwise, talking women, and the two, two women I think we have with very strong messages on the show today. Raise Your Leaders is what, Raise Your Leaders is what uh, brand specialist Jenny Handley says, and she's going to be sharing some of how she suggests that you can do that from her book of the very same name, which is interesting. And if you'd like to join us on that one, why not? 0892102010. After that, after the news headlines, Melanie Vervoort, one-time ANC MP, South African Ambassador to Ireland, head of UNICEF Ireland, well, She's had some very challenging times in the years, both before and since leaving South Africa for Ireland. She's back in South Africa at present to launch her book. It's called The Verwoot Who Toy Toyed, in which she tells her own story and that of her relationship with well-known and late radio presenter in Ireland, Jerry Ryan, warts and all, to quote her, own, her words and his. It's been a tough time. Her story is long, and her story falls neatly into two parts, South Africa and Ireland. Going to be hearing the first part now right here on Otherwise, and the second part later on on Sunday on SFM Literature, so if you're able to join me then, please do. What's news? Well, I think that there's only really one bit of news that's moving us all today, uh, as it has done over the last couple of days, and as it surely will ahead. I'm not sure if this poem has been heard already uh, in the tributes to Vuyo, but it was sent to me yesterday by Dr. Kaletso Setlabi, who listens to South Africa SAFM daily from Gaborone in Botswana. So I'm going to read it because I think it's really nice. The invisible connection of your voice, remembering Vuyombuli. I knew you, but not really, yet I did in so many ways. How can I say I didn't? When I always looked for you, when I found you, I rested. It wasn't your presence with me, but the presence of your voice. It was your, that voice, your voice, that connected us. And so I truly knew you, Voyo, for even across the borders I heard your voice. It's a past distance. Your death to me is a transborder loss. I weep for you, for your voice, for that invisible connection. Maybe conflicted a little, confused even more. How can I cry for a stranger? But you are not, Voyo. My tears aren't for a stranger, but for a great person, a greater voice. Your disconnected voice is not silence. I hear you louder now. Robala ka kahiso, Voyo. Thank you very much. Join me, Hilton Tarrant, every weeknight at 6 for the SAFM Market Update with MoneyWeb. With breaking business news, expert analysis, investment insights and the story behind the story, we're helping you make sense of the markets and your money. That's the Market Update, weeknights right here on SAFM at 6. News from the TV Licence Office. With our new SMS balance inquiry function, you can now get your TV licence balance conveniently on your cell phone. SMS your ID number or TV licence number to 44210 and voila, 44210. Quick and easy. TV licences make a difference. Otherwise, on SAFM. Well, first up here on Otherwise Talking Women, we're talking about leaders. We're talking about a book called Raise Your Leaders, Inspiring Leaders to Grow Leaders. And I have with me to tell us all about it, Jenny Handley. Well, Jenny is a brand specialist. She's a writer. She's a speaker. She's many things. And she's written many books, uh, including Raise Your Game, Raise Your Profile, and now we have Raise Your Leaders. You wonder what else is going to be risen up there, Jenny. Lovely to have you with us once again. Remember fondly our conversations about your earlier books. 
Well, people who lead by example very much in our thoughts right at the moment. And uh, just looking ahead, on Wednesday and Thursday, at, uh, otherwise, it's actually going to be coming to you from the Quality Life We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For. It's a women's leadership conference. So the word leaders is very much in our mind. And Jenny, nice to have you with us. Wonderful to be back. Thank you. I think leadership, if I can just start with my sincere condolences, but leaders come in many forms. And I mm. think Voy was a very good example of someone who was a role model and leader to many people, many of whom he perhaps hadn't met. Um, And I think leaders are often not aware of the impact that they make on others around them. And they might work with somebody or get to know somebody for a short time, but if they're leading by example in such a positive way, their impact is felt for years afterwards. And they're often not told how they are appreciated and how they've, in fact, shaped somebody in, in their lives. So I think he shaped all of you in just touching you. So... That's and, one good and example. So many, and so many listeners. And mm. the interesting thing is that he might, no, I don't know, but he might not necessarily have seen himself in the leadership package. I mean, he was, he was many things, but leadership is, is perhaps not necessarily something. But you use leadership and role model almost sort of, uh, almost together there. Well, good leaders should be good role models and it's the humble leader that makes the impression on others because they have empathy, they retain their humility however iconic they may be and I think in Raise Your Profile we were, I was exposed to many iconic leaders but in writing Raise Your Leaders I had the privilege of interviewing many established leaders but also aspirant leaders and it's interesting when you look at the commonality that is in all leadership icons or or great leaders, they look at the impact on other people before they look at what's good for them. They stand back and say, what's good for the team, not always what's what's going to be good for me. Um, And that makes a great leader, somebody who can understand the needs of their team and meet those needs. They have influence, they have a responsibility. So it's not always about good corporate governance and you know, sticking to the policies and procedures, but it's more about developing the people around them. Everything you describe sounds like a mother to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about the team, you know, which is the family, putting, putting their, especially when children are very small, and I suppose raise your leaders kind of sounds like, you know, bringing up leaders, whether it's from the cradle or maybe it's, you know, from high school or whatever it may be. Are we looking necessarily at, or are we, who are we talking, who are you talking to with this book? I'm hoping to talk to leaders because I want to inspire them to grow the next wave of leadership. Actively. Actively. You know, to, to stand back and say, what, what does my team need? How can I see the potential in the people around me and how can I then develop it? Because it is, in fact, the responsibility of the leader. Yes, we as individuals need to be self-motivated and we need to grow ourselves, but we need to firstly be given that opportunity. And I do believe that leadership starts in the home. Women are, by nature, empathetic. They are all-encompassing. They multitask. They care about the people around them. And that does start in the home. So I believe that's where the roots of leadership lie. And if you look back in your life, or I look back in mine, if you think back to where your attitudes and your beliefs and your moral values started, that is in the home. And interesting, in the research that I did, I looked at the different quotients, intellectual quotient, emotional, I looked at moral, I looked at spiritual, and I was horrified to see how little there is written about moral quotient. How do we develop our moral fiber? How do we set our moral compass? And I believe that actually does start in the home. And it's by example. It's by our parents, our siblings. And that's, yeah, that is the start. Parents, 
with an S, um, which, which, you know, by, by saying, sort of emphasising that, I suppose I'm thinking that the leadership example should not, or, or the one who's taking responsibility for the team, a.k.a. the family, is, need not necessarily just be the mother. There needs to be some sort of leadership quality from the father as well, albeit um, sort of consciously or unconsciously. I think mother and father, but I think also if we look at how families exist in society today, we don't have the old-fashioned nuclear family. Often it's a single parent and perhaps there are extended role models who come into the family as visitors, as relatives, as friends, and they're also part of that leadership journey. They also hopefully influence in a positive way. So, yes... It is the parents, and often it will fall more to one primary parent than the other. And it may not be the female, it may also be the male. We have a caller on the line, 0892 10 2010, if you'd like to join us, you're welcome. 0892 10 2010, we've got Carol from the Western Cape. Hi, Carol. Hi, Nancy. Um, I'm... having very, very overwhelmed the last two days listening to all the tributes of Ruyu. Mm-hmm. And um, listening to your guest now, Jenny, is it? Yes. Um, you spot on with what you're talking about, because this goes beyond gender anyway, I'm sorry to say, even though this is a ladies' program, mm-hmm. and I'm totally with you as a lady in t- encouraging leadership. You're talking about role models, you're talking about family. Now, I, I, would, I have just been so overwhelmed by the kind of person that Ruyu Mbuli was and is and has been to us as a nation. And I, I, I listened to the radio yesterday. To come to the point, um, I, I heard your response as well as everybody else's. And I just have been thinking, when Princess Di died, she, she, um, Tony Blair, at the current time Prime Minister, called her the People's Princess. Now, I've just suddenly been thinking, apropos the professionalism, the expertise, and the remarkable humanity uh, and, and warmth of Mr. Mbouli, Mbouli um, I, I would like to propose that he be seen by all of us right across the spectrum in South Africa because this has been a very rallying moment for all of us. We've been united against all the forces of, of bad news and we've suddenly rallied to a, the strength of a patriot who makes us one as a nation. And I remember uh, times listening and watching him, but it's never hit me till right now. We need this. He, I would propose, is like the people's Prince of South African Broadcasting, a rallying, uniting factor, a tribute to his humanity and his warmth, and what we, as South Africans, should be ascribing to in Ubuntu. And may he rest in peace, and God bless you all. Bye-bye. Cheers. Hi, Carol. I'm afraid it's a very emotional time, and we're all really struggling with this, aren't we? But I just want, I want mm, to pick up on that, Carol. Thank you for those words, and, and Nancy, to give you a moment. I'm quite amazed that that call came in, and my book is open at a page where I've quoted the Zulu proverb about Ubuntu. So it's amazing how things come together, and one finds solace and, and comfort and strength in words. So... It's wonderful that we've had some words from listeners phoning in. Yes, it was a very good call. Thank you very much, Carol. Um, uniting the nation, I suppose that's a, that's a really important thing for a leader to do, to sort of unite people. And what you said right at the beginning there, Jenny, was about it's not about you as a leader. It's about the people that you're leading. And, and bringing everybody together, I think, is a really important aspect. But if I can just go back to we are the man, um, as, you know, as over and above the, the professional that he was, very much a family man. He talked a lot about his children, and uh, I think his son was with him watching that rugby match. And, and I think that that's, 
that's pretty important. And I don't want to put your book into the sort of the, the parenting category. In fact, you were sharing with me earlier that one of the bookshops actually put it into the parenting section because I know that's not, that's not really what you mean. It starts in the family, and it's, it's, it's very important in the family, but it's the family principle mm. of raising leaders that you're looking to bring to the rest of the society. It is, but I think also just to mention that I, in fact, dedicated this book to my sons um, and because I think I've learned my most valuable leadership lessons right there from them, from parenting, from guiding, and it's almost like you're taking the same qualities out of your home into the workplace. And if you look at the leaders that do that, the leaders who are able to listen, to understand, to care, to genuinely worry about what happens to the people in their workplace, those are the better leaders. They are the ones who inspire the next generation. They're the ones who leave a legacy. They don't look at the business in terms of the bottom line. They look at the bottom line as an outcome of what's happened when they've actually built the people to be more productive and to perform better. And if you think about how people who are performing better do it, they're productive because they're happy in their workplace. So if you can provide the right environment, I think that transcends from home to work. People who are in an environment where they can express themselves, where they're allowed to be creative, where they're given boundaries so that when you say to them, I want you to think out of the box, you've already given them that box to jump from. Not, um, so they're not left to their own devices. They've got somebody who's leading gently from behind, a little bit like parenting. So I find it hard to separate the two. And I also, going back to mentioning earlier, you know, the, the male and the female side. It's interesting. I grew up in a home with two older brothers, and I've grown up in, for my sins, an all-male household. So I think one learns a lot from the other sex. So women are good leaders because they're intuitive, they have that wonderful instinct. Men are good leaders for other reasons. But when we combine those, we learn from one another, we're going to be great leaders. There's been a great deal said about leadership. There's been a great deal written about leadership. In your, in your own words in the book, you say you've read many, many of them, and many of them have been very useful. What sets this apart is that this is not about leadership. It's about the next generation of leadership. So very consciously, you've taken that route. But first, you do have to know yourself and lead yourself. So start with those principles. Well, in fact, I started with, you know, what is leadership, looking at, at how you can define it. And then going forward and saying, yes, get to know yourself, get to know who you are. Because my personal philosophy on, on leadership is based on two things. A, leadership is not about having all the answers. It's about being big enough to admit that you're ignorant enough to still need to ask questions, but knowing who to ask, when to ask, and what to ask. And then secondly, I believe in asset-based leadership, knowing what you're really good at, what are your strengths, and then being able to analyze them and say, but now how can I use my strengths to build the people around me? And looking at your liabilities and saying, what am I not? How can I then appoint to my weaknesses so that I'm brave enough to put people in place who actually are better than me. So I think learning and leadership is a two-way street. It never stops, and we never stop growing. Mm, yeah, it's a very good point, because you, you know, just because you are leading, whatever way you may be, it doesn't mean that you're going, you've, you've now stopped, you've reached your zenith, that's it. And you can be learning. Interesting, you say you've learned a lot from your sons, and I remember saying to my son once, something rather facetiously about, but I've taught you everything you know. And he said, no, 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 you've taught me everything that you know. Just think, not different. Very different. And I think that the point is that you've still got, you've got to keep your mind open to continually learning, especially in the sort of intergenerational changes 
um, you know, the, the silverbacks, those sort of leaders at, at the top, need to be very aware of what's going on in the other generation. Is that part of... Is that part of a two-way learning curve? It definitely is. And in fact, I finish off the book with Chapter 10 being about enhanced leadership, saying the leadership that we've been practicing in the past and that we're practicing now will not be relevant in the future because things are changing so quickly. We have such a mobile generation below us. So we need to meet their needs. It's not about this is how we've always done it. It's about how can we do it so that we enhance your leadership and looking at complexity, looking at change and... And admitting that we don't have all the answers. So leadership learning is ongoing. We don't have all the answers, and very often we don't have a whole lot of time. And what I like about your book is that, once again, and you're quite good at this, I have to say, you're very good at putting it into sort of little boxes. And, okay, this is the bit I'm going to focus on. So even if you've only got ten minutes in the in the train or whatever it may be, you can have a quick look. And, and, and like, for instance, your personal brand plan, questions to ask yourself What sort of questions should you be asking yourself? I always say the question is what I want to leave behind, what impact do I want to make, how can I improve other people? Um, And I've tried to do that not just in words alone. I've included video clips in the book which you can scan and watch. So instead of just reading reams of writing, which I think also the younger generation don't always want to do, I've tried to move people from dialogue to debate and then into actually watching. So they can question themselves. So I've posed a few questions, I've given some of the answers, and I'm hoping that people have thought-provoking matter that will get them to start their own leadership journey. On the issue of leaders are born, not made, um, you know, question, question mark, uh, your feeling, born, not made, can anybody become a leader given the right sort of guidance? I think we all have potential, and if it's well-developed at the right time by the right people, We can all in some way lead others, but we have to start with leading ourselves. So it's a debate that rages on, and I believe we all need to be given the opportunity of training. So I'm hoping that this book is more of a manual or a program than just to pick up and read. I'm hoping that it helps develop people and lets them see their own potential. At what point should one sort of jump in with sort of a conscious leadership uh, skilling, if you like? Because, you know, there, there's a vulnerable age when people are, they can go either way in terms of, of where they're headed, you, you know, who they're surrounded by, etc., etc. You know, I suppose I'm thinking of the sort of the early youth where there's a lot of programs for young people. You know, you can do this and you can do that. And some will and some won't. Um, is there, should it start perhaps a little earlier? Should it start later? When is the optimum time? I think it's so individual. I think we all are so unique. And some people are not ready for responsibility at a really young age. Others are identified as natural leaders and are given that responsibility and may flourish with it. But I, I think there's no hard and fast rule there. I, to give people maximum opportunities when they're young is wonderful. But if they don't take it then and they want to take it later, that's also fine. You've got lots of 10-point plans in yes. the book. Um, I'm sure you haven't got them necessarily just on the top of your head, but 10-point plans, can, where, where would you start if you're somebody who's in a uh, position where they could be helping raise other leaders? What, what were 10 points that would be the most valuable? Um, I think to go back to the balance sheet that I mean, mentioned earlier, to even start with sitting with somebody who they believe has potential and said, right, let's list 10 of your strengths. What are your assets? Um, and to talk about that together, because often we don't see ourselves as good as we are. 
Um, and other people will see something that we do really well that we perhaps think we are quite average at. So it's a very affirmative way of starting a leadership process. If just to listen. Just to look at strengths, look at your assets and, and let somebody pinpoint them for you. Is there, is, it, is there a sort of um, a, a group leadership that thing that goes on? I mean, in some schools, some businesses are very good at uh, uh, bolstering or boosting, if you like, the, the, um, their teams. Is, it, is there something to be said for doing it in a group rather ah, than the individual? I think so, because I think you feed off one another's energy. You know, there's the group dynamics, and, and whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, I think there is an opportunity to learn more with other people. I always say you learn more from people than you do from paper. And it's interesting, if you, if you look at the definition of an, of an introvert, that's someone who feeds off their own energy and gathers inspiration from within. But an extrovert, in fact, gets their energy and positivity from other people. So what you find is you develop group EQ if you put these people in a room together. Because the introverts start to also feed off the extroverts. And it's wonderful when the dynamics come together and you can... You can borrow some, when I put borrow in inverted commas, but you borrow the, um, the talents and the confidence of other people. And yeah. to build your confidence, you need to be with people who make you feel confident. Yes, confidence is a huge one, as is moral quotient that you mentioned right at the beginning. And that's something difficult because, well, it's not difficult. Um, it's just that it's quite difficult to achieve if you, if you didn't have it from the get-go. Is it something, again, that you can sort of uh, work out for yourself if you haven't necessarily had anybody drumming it into you when you were a child? I think you can. You can stand back and say, what's important to me? What do I believe in? What do I believe is, is the difference between right and wrong? And it's an interesting group discussion to have because when you sit together as a group and say, right, what do you think is right and what do you think is wrong? Um, being right is not getting away with something until you get caught. It's about what inherently feels good when you know you've done something right and also you know when you've done something wrong. And, and I think the question there is, you know, can I put my head on the pillow and sleep at night? Do I feel completely comfortable with this? And then you know it's right. It just resonates with you and it, it feels good. Is it a pick up and go, and I've got it, buy it at the airport, read it on the plane, sort of a book, or would it, or do you give workshops that go with it? I do a lot of workshop um, facilitation, and sometimes it's a full-on leadership academy, and sometimes it's a once-off intervention when I go in and hopefully stimulate the journey for people to then pick up the book and work through themselves. And I think that's, for me, the pleasure of writing a book is then having the conversations that occur after the book is published. On the cover of the book, which has got a tree with all sorts of words coming off it and, you know, the ends of the branches all sort of inspire, cultivate, assess, communicate, nurture, etc., etc. I, I always hate closing on a negative point, but what do you think are the biggest blocks in raising leaders? I think perhaps it's people don't believe in themselves enough, that you will identify the potential in so someone. It's from within. And right? I think it's from mm. within. I think we are our own worst enemies, and dare I say that women especially are not good at seeing their own potential because they're scared of being arrogant. Um, and because of that, they often don't work hard enough on upskilling themselves, selling themselves, and being confident. And I believe in them. I think we all have great potential. And in addition to that, we have a great potential of working together and supporting one another. Yeah, maybe they're too busy working for the team and not realizing that they themselves mm -hmm. are a role model when we come back to where we started. I think so. Jenny Handley, thank you once again. Um, it was seeking to bring out the right book at the right time. It's called Raise Your Leaders, Inspiring Leaders to Grow. It's published by Jenny Handley Productions. And if you'd like to get hold of copies, it's in 
all it's of in all the leading bookstores or otherwise on our website. Which is www.jennyhandley, that's J-E-N-N-Y-H-A-N-D-L-E-Y, jennyhandley.co.com. Today. If you want to pick up a good old-fashioned telephone, you can do that too. The number is 021-686-0287, 021-686-0287. Jenny Handley, thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely. What do we say with us? You're listening to Otherwise here on SAFM, talking women as we do each and every weekday. And in a minute, we're going to be talking to a woman who has been... Um, her grandmother once said to her, you come from a long line of very strong women, and she's done absolutely nothing to change that inheritance. So going to be talking to Milani Favort in just a minute. But right now, it's 1.30. Time for the news headlines with Asanda. Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. Mercedes-Benz says an illegal strike at its East London plant has begun to affect production. The company says the strike is apparently in reaction to its decision to investigate work stoppages in its paint shop. A school of government will soon be set up to train civil servants on professionalism in the public sector. Public Service and Administration Minister Lindiwe Sisulu says the initiative will be launched in October. And the DA has called on the city of Johannesburg to immediately provide clarity on the municipal property values of homes belonging to the Gupta family. According to newspaper reports, the municipal value of the family's properties in Saxon World, north of Johannesburg, are drastically lower than their actual value. For SAFM News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyane. Details at 2. Over to you, Nancy. Thanks very much, Asanda. Um, I hope you're wearing red today. You're listening to Otherwise We're Talking Women. And uh, next up, Melanie Vavort. Well, Melanie Vavort's grandmother once said to her that you come from a long line of very strong women. Mm-hmm. And Melanie has done absolutely nothing to break that line of inheritance. In her politics, her career, her relationships in, throughout, throughout her life, in fact, she's been very, very strong in her beliefs and in her actions. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She was born in 1967, Melanie Fourie. For 19 years, she was married to Wilhelm, grandson of H.F. Favort, architect of apartheid, and they had two children, Vianne and Vilme. And in 1994, auspicious year, she became an ANC MP. In 2001, she became ambassador to Ireland, where she moved with her family, and she and Wilhelm divorced in 2005. In 2006, she became head of UNICEF Ireland, and in 2008, she entered into a relationship with a hugely popular radio presenter, Jerry Ryan, who tragically died in 2010. Her book, her autobiography, is called The Vavort Who Toy Toyed, and it falls, naturally enough, into two parts, South Africa and Ireland. Mm. And we're going to talk to her right now. Here she is in the studio. Milani, lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And lovely to have you with me. Because having finished your book, I, think <laughs> it, so I really know you quite well. We're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the South African part because yes. we're going to talk to you later on about uh, the Irish years and, and there's, there's much to be discussed there. But, Melanie, let me just tell you, and I'm sure you've probably heard here that over the weekend that we on this station lost a hugely yeah. popular radio presenter. Yeah, my William sympathies Bully. to his Thank family you. and yes. to everybody who worked with him and was close to him. He was a f- phenomenal broadcaster, and Thank I'm you. really, really sad. And he's so young as well to have left us. So yeah, absolutely. Sad. And I and I thought, gosh, you will relate to this only too well, um, because Jerry Ryan, to whom you were so very close for mm. a number of years, dry, died tragically. And there was, again... Uh, 
a huge outpouring. He was mm. a massive presence. There was a huge outpouring from the Irish people. So. Yeah, Jerry was an amazing man, and of course he was incredibly popular in Ireland. He's been on the national broadcaster for 27 years and had a daily radio program for three hours, and um, which about half a million people. And I remember Ireland only has just below four million people, so it's a lot of people would listen to every day. So he was very much an institution in Ireland. And when he died, also very young, um, from a heart attack in his early 50s, um, it was a huge public outpouring and thousands of people came to his funeral and was broadcast live. So yes, you know, I do relate and I can just imagine the shock of everybody close to him. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on that one. Let's talk about you, Milani. Let's, let's get right back to the beginning. You were born Milani Fari from a very Africana household. Uh, I think your grandmother in particular was um, quite, quite definitive in her beliefs. What shaped your early thinking? Just put yourself back into your girlhood. What, what, what was going on in your childhood? You know, I, I, I grew up, of course, like most Afrikaner kids would have. My, my, I was actually born for Nika. My parents divorced when I was quite young, so that's why the surname changed. Um, so I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm. They had a small little farm outside Fochville, close to Carltonville and Pusherstrom. And I spent a lot of time there and spent hours, you know, talking to my grandmother, running after my grandfather and bare feet and things like that. And it's interesting that in a way I think that was very formative, even though politically they would have been, and they were appalled when I joined the ANC, um, they would have been very conservative. Um, in a strange way, growing up with them who didn't have a secondary education even, who were fairly poor, but who were the people I loved so much, made it very easy for me later on when I decided to join the ANC. I always said when I was working in the townships, it felt like I was back on the farm to some extent, the smells, the noises, the you know, even the animals that you could hear, but also understanding that whether you have an education, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, what background you come from is really fairly irrelevant to whether you are a nice person or not or whether you should have certain rights. So I think that played a huge role in, in my life. Things changed a little bit um, before, we, before we leave your childhood. I know mm. that you have been talking about you coming from a long line of very strong women. I think mm. your mother was a particularly strong woman. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she was one of the first women in South Africa to get a computer degree. Yes. Well done, her. <laughs> yes. Um, Still is a very formidable person. Yeah. Lovely. But I think you did have trouble with your dad. I did. I mean, you know, it was my, my parents were divorced, and in a way, thankfully so, because I think my tr- childhood would have been very much more troubled if, if, if she didn't. My mom didn't divorce him. My dad was an alcoholic and struggled with addictions all his life, so I only saw him at holidays once a year or twice a year, and it was very treacherous. It was difficult. It was, you know, it's the sad story of people who struggle with addiction. Um, and my dad, I guess, tried his best, but we didn't have a good relationship, and it certainly was a very, yeah, it was very painful. Mm, through the years. He died as well. I hadn't seen him for almost 10 years then, and he died when I was pregnant with my second child. Um, so I didn't even, I couldn't even attend his funeral. So it, it was sad. And, and towards the end of my teens, I actually went through an adoption process um, where I actually asked him to sign me off, uh, which was a fairly dramatic mm-hmm. thing to do. And um, I asked my mother's second marriage, a father, so my second father in a way, to adopt me. Um, so that's why the surname changed. And um, it was quite a dramatic thing to do, mm-hmm. I think, when I was 18, 19, but I needed him to be out of my life. Um, so, in a way, I divorced my dad, you know. It's a very moving chapter in your book about that, when mm-hmm. you just turn around and you think, is he not even going to turn yeah. around and say goodbye? Yeah, it was very painful. Life mm-hmm. can be difficult here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
However, one does, despite all, but because of one's parents, one becomes whatever one becomes. And, and you went to university, and I think that there, your your mind started to shape and take on different influences, all sorts of things. It's where you met your husband. What what were the influences, politically speaking, I suppose, um, politically and in your studies? What was going on then? You know, it was interesting because we moved to the Western Cape, so I grew up in Stellenbosch mainly, my formative years. So secondary school was in Blumhoff, Girls High. You know, and obviously, remember, this was the 80s now, so between 80 and 84, I was at high, secondary school, high school. So, you know, difficult areas at times in South Africa, but so secluded from everything. And, of course, Stellenbosch in particularly is very secluded, a very secluded place, beautiful, seductive in its beauty. It was very easy to forget everything. So I did ballet, I went to school, grew up in this lovely white neighborhood, the oak line tree everything and never had to deal with really anything but I, I was already questioning I think I always had a sense of justice and I got into a few arguments at school already then we went I went to university and from an all-girls school and uh, only having sisters I decided to study theology um, only women in my class of 14 men yes which was a bit strange um, and women couldn't be ordained at that stage in the Dutch Reformed Church but I still wanted to become a minister so I did that and then towards the end of my, I, well, I met Phil Hallam, of course, I knew of him, and we met Phil Hallam, and Phil Hallam then went abroad um, on a Rhodes Scholarship in my second year, and he started sending me stuff back from abroad, some of the band books, um, Steve Biko's books, some of Mandela's speeches at the dock, and he would put it in between philosophy lectures, um, sort of notes, so that we hoped that they wouldn't catch us. The process started then, and then I also went to visit Vilalem at the end of my second year. He was then already at Oxford, and we met South African exiles there. And they sat with us, um, Tsipisa Mashanini in particular, who was Tetsi Mashanini, who led the Soweto uprising, one of the leaders there. His younger brother was there, and they sat for hours and hours and just spoke to us. And suddenly a country, you know, unfolded in front of our eyes that we had no idea about. And so I came back after that holiday very much disillusioned. It felt a bit like somebody pulled the carpet from under me because I didn't believe anything my parents were saying. I certainly didn't believe anything the news or the SBC was telling me anymore. I didn't believe anything my lecturers were telling me. So it was a, it was a quite a traumatic time. This was towards you know, the mid-80s now. And, of course, a dangerous time also to start thinking about ANC stuff and so on, especially when you were white. But that made the big change. Um, and then I joined Wilhelm towards the end of the 80s, um, 89. Wilhelm and I got married at the end of 87. We stayed another year and in South Africa, and they went back to Oxford at 89. And then, you know, the big changes happened, of course, in South Africa. And during that period, we had made a concerted effort of meeting with ANZ exiles and people abroad and so on. And so that's when we then decided to come back in 1990 after the ANC was unbanned. And it was one thing for you, uh, pinning your colours to the ANC mask, for, for, for Wilhelm, another thing altogether, given mm -hmm. his family background, very, very difficult. It caused some difficulty between yourself and him and his family? Yeah, it certainly did. Um, I joined the ANC first. We met Nelson Mandela shortly after his release, which was very, very poignant meeting. It was at an Afrikaans leadership meeting in Stellenbosch in 1990, so it was shortly after his release. And Yanni Momberg, the old um, MP, who was later joined, who was also then joined the ANC, um, at his house in Stellenbosch, and mainly Afrikaans intellectuals. And at some point, Yanni introduced us and of course made an issue about the Favor thing. And Madiba immediately wanted to listen to us and so on. And Valam and myself wanted to apologize for him, you know, for the role that our communities and so on, in particular in Valam's case, the family, of course, played in it. And Madiba wouldn't 
listened to that, he stopped both of us. And he, first of all, he asked after Valam's grandmother and asked how she was and sent his regards to her, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to do. You know, he just got out of jail and now he's sending regards to the wife of the Prime Minister, fundamentally, under which reign he was incarcerated and the ANC was banned. And then... Then he also said, look, as for what you, people who carry the surname for what you need to realize that when you speak, people will listen, and mm-hmm. you need to decide what you want to do with that power. It can be a burden or it can be a strength, and you need to decide what you wanted to do. So I then, I then was so moved by that, and I'd already done a lot of work in the townships at that stage with friends of mine, um, um, and then I decided to join the ANC. Valalam only joined about eight months later. And we then just asked the ANC as well, we all along, because we didn't want to make a public statement. This was a personal choice. We wanted to make a personal statement. So we asked the ANC not to make a fuss about it, and, and, and they didn't. Um, but then there was one line in a newspaper, um, in actually a magazine, the State of Rikan at that stage, who remarked on the fact that I had subsequently been elected onto the ANC executive in Stellenbosch. And then the story broke. And, of course, then Valhalla's parents, who didn't know that we joined the ANC, we kept it quiet from them, um, they found out. And Valhalla's father in particular, who I think, I mean, understandably so, felt he was the patriarch of the family, the oldest son, felt that we had betrayed the family name, that we had done great damage to the family and said that we were not welcome anymore in the family and disinherited us and disinherited Valhalla and also said that we would not be welcome in the family home anymore, which was very painful because we had two small children. In fact, I was still pregnant with Vienna at that stage and, you know, we wanted our children to have contact with their grandparents. Um, whether we agreed politically with each other was irrelevant to me. They were still my children's grandparents. Um, so we would take the children there, and it was hard because I had to drop them, then leave, um, you know, sometimes sit outside in the car and wait and then breast, take, the, take the baby from my mother-in-law over the fence, then bre- breastfeed him, then give him back again, you know, because, of course, his mother in particular found it very hard. She wanted to see her grandchildren be with them. And that continued basically for 10 years. Um, and it was only after I left active politics, we left abroad, we went to go abroad and I became ambassador, when things calmed down a little bit. And I think when Valadam and I sadly divorced, I think then things really improved, you know, when I was out of the picture. So now it's fine, as far as I understand. And I have a civil relationship with the Favorites. Mm. I see them when I'm here and, and so on. But um, certainly it was very painful. And what made it even more difficult was Valadam's father felt that it was necessary to publicly um, make a statement about it. And that caused huge difficulties for us um, in that early period of the 90s because they, we were then put on a hit list by the far right and the security forces came to warn us about it. And, so, and we got an incredible amount of death threats and it was often conveyed to our children who was only four years old when they picked up the phone and so on. So it was a very uncomfortable period for all of us. And of course, on a personal level for Valalam, incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Fences seem to come up again and again. I, you talk about having to pass your baby over the fence of the family, but I'm thinking that there was a time when you were in Parliament when you had to jump over the school <laughs> fence because they wouldn't let you no, in. Parliament's fence. Parliament's fence because, <laughs> because somebody was being terribly difficult. Yeah. What happened there? Well, literally climbing over the gates of Parliament. Um, well, you know, I'd been elected as a member of Parliament in '94. My children were very small at that stage. Well, me had just turned four, and Vianne was about 18 months. And then eventually, because the driving got too much from Stellenbosch, we originally lived in Stellenbosch. 
Wimbush. We decided to move to Cape Town. And um, we, um, I would take the kids in the morning to St. George's Pre-Primary, which was at the back of the cathedral. I don't think it's there anymore, but at the back of St. George's Cathedral. But there was a side gate through Parliament which you could enter so that you go into the gardens. And then, so it's much shorter, and, you know, with grumpy kids in the morning and that kind of thing. And one morning I was late, so we did our usual thing and had the usual hundreds of bottles and, you know, the lunch boxes and the teddies and the extra shoes and the extra clothes in my arms and... I was very late for a meeting, so I was rushing kids who didn't want to be rushed. So I got to the gate, and the policeman was standing there, and I said, why isn't the gate open? Because it was locked. And he said, well, I haven't had instructions yet to open the gate. And I said, do you have the key? And he said, yes. And I said, well, can you not just unlock it for me so I can take these kids out? And he said, no. So I said, look, I'm just going to climb over the gate if you don't do it. And he looked at me, but I had a sort of striped suit, skirt, and high heels on. So I think he just assumed, no way would she do this, you know, being an MP and all. And so he turned his face away from me, and then I got really annoyed. So I just put everything down and started climbing over this. And people will know how high the gates of parliaments are. I mean, they meant to keep deter people from getting in, certainly not from getting out, but certainly getting out there was hard. So I got to the top with the kids sort of bumping up and down, going, go, mom, go, mom, go, mom. And this policeman didn't know what to do. He said he'd have to arrest me, and I said, I have, I have immunity. I'm a member of parliament. And there were some homeless guys on the other side starting to cheer me on, so it became a bit of a scene. And um, so I got a bit stuck at the top, but eventually jumped over. And, of course, now my kids were on the wrong side of the fence, so I said to the policeman, now pass them over, will you? And he said, he want, I could see he didn't want to do it, but then Vilni stretched out her arms and he left her over and then, you know, everything, the lunchboxes, the teddies, the shoes, everything came with. And when I returned a few minutes later, um, the gates were open, of course, because they weren't going to risk me coming back over again, I think. But then when I walked into Parliament, I was rushing to my meeting. Yanni Momberg, who had at that stage become a whip, and as, as people will recall, Yanni was a farmer from Nietlingshof, so... He kind of treated us in the ANC like farm workers sometimes. You know, he'd holler at you. You know, we all loved Yanni, but still. So I suddenly heard behind me, you know, and I turned around. And I said, yes, I'm Yanni. And he said, please tell me you didn't just climb over the gates of Parliament. And I said, well, kind of thinking, oh, I'm not so sure if this diplomatic immunity or parliamentary immunity was actually applicable. And then I just looked at him and he started laughing and he shuffled off, you know, and said, God, this new parliament is something else. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes kids make you do funny things. I blame the kids. They said blame the kids. And being a woman makes you do funny things, too. I mean, that, was a, that was a great story. It's a great story. But if only all the fence stories were so humorous. I mean, you mm. spent a lot of time, I think, in Stellenbosch visiting your constituents there, ducking in and out of fences on farms where you were putting certainly not, not just your own life in danger, but the farmer, the, the mm lives of your constituents tough stuff it was you know i'm i think things have changed i hope they have to a large extent but you know after 94 farm workers like so many places in the world the wine farm farm workers but it's all true for farm workers generally they were the hidden ones they were the ones who you could never see them from the main roads they were behind the dam walls behind the trees that kind of thing and they lived in appalling conditions in almost all the cases so um, after I was elected in 1994, it became one of my big aims was to, to really try and work with farm workers around the Stellenbosch area because also, to be fair and honest, you know, we weren't getting much votes anywhere else in any case at that stage. So I'd, I worked very hard. But it was hard because, of course, the farmers didn't want us to get access to the farm, even though the Electoral Act gave us access. But that, you know, what did that mean? It was very hard when a farmer stood in front of you with a gun that you weren't going to go anywhere. So sometimes I dressed up like a farm worker. You know, I would polish my face a bit for dark and with this gun and scarf and old clothes. 
but then, you know, a few times even that wouldn't have worked, and I didn't want to put my the, the, the farm workers' lives in danger. So, like one night, I was asked by a community if they if I would come, or they asked me during the day in my constituency office, and then I had to climb under a gate uh, and a fence, which they lifted for me. They waited for me next to a farm road, and I walked for half an hour, of course, thinking suddenly, I don't even know this farm worker I'm with. I'm walking in this dark field somewhere. But it was really important because in that case the farmer wouldn't open the gates um, for an ambulance a week earlier and one of his farm workers was very oh sick and died, you know. So we had to expose those stories. And, of course, the farmers didn't like that particularly, that I did that. I became very hated um, in Stellenbosch. But sometimes the stories were also funny. One morning I got a worker in my constituency office and he came in really early and he said he was fired from the farm. And, of course, by that stage we had passed the legislation which meant you couldn't just summarily dismiss anybody. So I got the details found the farmer up and said hello because Milani for you know in Afrikaans and I'm an ANC MP and I have one of your farm workers here and I think you fired him and he said yes I did you know and was swearing left right and centre and so on I said yeah but actually you can't do that so now either you work with me and take him back and we'll help you because the, the farm worker clearly had an alcohol problem and we'll help you to put him through an alcohol rehabilitation program or else we can, you know, I can now go and get a lawyer and then it's going to be a lot and there was long silence and then he said tell me again who you are and I said, I'm Melanie Favors, I'm an ANC MP, and he's here in my constituency office. And he just, he swore, so I won't swore on radio now, but he said, these Evans has really friends in high places now, don't they? You know, send him back, I'll take him back, you know, kind of thing. So, in a way, it was quite humorous also, and very rewarding to be able to work on behalf of our farm workers and actually give, helping them to get a voice again. Um, and in, it worked in 1999, we got a majority of votes on the farms as well. But more rewarding was the fact that, that it actually made a difference. Um, so I hope things have changed, even though I was a bit worried about all the strikes I saw recently. So. <laughs> well, indeed, and, and, and do they not continue? Um, making a difference, I think, has been a sort of a key in your life, one way or another. Two things that we are fast coming to the end of our time, but I just want to ask you, did you have a toy toy? Yes. Good. <laughs> yes, I did, and so did my daughter. She was an expert toy toyer <laughs> during the rolling mass action. Of, um, um, it, we, we were a sight to behold because I was very far pregnant, and we toy toyed, you know, so, and so did Wilmy. Not half bad, but pregnant is all, all uh, taking that into account as well. Lani, very, very briefly, we, and we're going to be talking about this on, uh, on SFM Literature. Finally, what made you leave South Africa? I was tired. I needed a break. I, you know, I, Parliament had changed. We had become a normal Parliament, so the excitement of the first five years had left us. But I wanted to continue working with South Africa. So I went to the President and asked whether it would be possible for me to become ambassador and serve the country in that way. And that's how I ended up in Ireland. I became South Africa's ambassador to Ireland. And then when I finished that term, I became the head of UNICEF in Ireland, which I served until about a year and a half ago. Um, so that's how and why I'm still there. And we're going to hear a whole lot more about that side of the story in times when no less exciting in Ireland one way or another. Milani Vervoort, thank you very much. It's been thank fascinating. You. I really enjoyed your book. And the book is called The Vervoort Who Toy Toyed. Yes, indeed. Milani Vervoort, and we will be hearing uh, more from her on SFM Literature. That's coming out next Sunday. But right now, here on SFM, it's time for Sharp Sharp, the children's programme.